You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. We are all carrying computers around with us at all times. We call them phones, which kind of takes away from the reality that these devices hold or can unlock some of our most sensitive personal information. And when our phones are casually unlocked throughout the day, while we browse news, book rides, and buy stuff, personal data can be thrown around like candy falling out of a just-cracked, overstuffed pinata. Virtual pinata, that is. Massive troves of consumer data have become the backbone of both legitimate and criminal enterprises in recent years. But as consumer trust dwindles and regulators step up data privacy protections, the tides are turning and individuals are gaining back control over their data and digital interactions. Today, if you're in the business of collecting consumer data, you better be in the business of protecting that data or you could very well find yourself with no business at all. And from a consumer standpoint, the companies we trust whether we think deeply before providing them with that trust or not, must continuously work to maintain and deepen our trust. On today's episode, I talk with Tomas Czerzic, who's the Chief Security Officer of Deutsche Telekom and Chief Technical Officer of Telecom Security. Deutsche Telekom is the parent company of T-Mobile, among others. In conversation, Tomas gets into the new rules of data and how telecommunications providers must live and breathe trust as they operate critical infrastructure that's widely used to communicate and store large amounts of sensitive data. In Deutsche Telekom's case, we're talking about data involving nearly 250 million mobile customers worldwide. Tomas also talks about the computers we all carry around with us everywhere. He seems pretty passionate about all of it. It's an interesting talk coming from a global perspective with a guy with a high pressure role, roles really, for a company that's practically everywhere. Tomas, by the way, is German and lives in Germany, and he beamed into our conversation from his office that's also in, you guessed it, Germany. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I, I read on your on the Deutsche Telekom website that the company is present in more than um, 50 countries with a staff of over 200,000. Yeah, absolutely. This this is an accurate number. So when we started as the incumbent, the local telecommunication provider in uh, Germany a couple of decades ago, um, we had mainly 200,000 employees here in Germany. Meanwhile, we have uh, still 200,000 employees, but we have operations in more than 15 countries across the planet with the, the main spots in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, but also in the US. But we, as a global carrier, we, we do have operations um, nearly everywhere. 248 million mobile customers, 26 million fixed network lines, and 22 million broadband lines. What does a typical day look like for you in, in, in your role overseeing the team? I'm not so sure whether there is a typical day or not. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, uh, often, often days with surprises, but, but mainly on Fridays as attacks 
uh, always almost starting on Fridays. That's somehow Murphy's Law, I guess. Um, so in, in my team is as well as as I described my role up front, it's, it's split it into two two teams actually, which we are closely connecting. When it comes just to the numbers, um, how many people we have for protecting our group, ourselves, our our assets, it, it's roughly uh, around six hundred. Yeah, five hundred uh, directly related to me, and another hundred or made hundred fifty or some more in the different entities and in local operations. And twice as much we have in the external operations serving serving our external clients with digital security services. Like we have banking, uh, customers out of the banking sector, out of transportation, out of chemical, where we run uh, cyber defense centers, penetration testing, and all these kind of things. What is the most challenging aspect of the role? And then I would say, um, secondly, what what part of the role do you enjoy most? Look, I would say the the challenging part of the role is that security was always treated as a roadblock in the past, and my mission and the mission with my team was really to to counteract on that. Yeah, really to start changing the intended behavior of the security organization. We're not the ones telling others what they can't do. Uh, we we we're working very hard on becoming the ones telling others how to do things. Yeah, instead of avoiding projects, we were the ones supporting projects by saying, okay, you can do it that way, then it might turn out into a disaster, but you can also do it in a different way, uh, and then it's safe. And so really transforming the security organization, which was treated as a roadblock into a helping hand for the business, and and Fun fact about that, in the past, I had a lot of escalations when, when my people were uh, involved in projects. Yeah, be- because the impression was we were slowing down the, the uh, development processes and uh, so on. And meanwhile, I have a lot of escalations when I don't have sufficient resources to support development projects. Yeah, so they escalating in me to, to get additional support, which really... Um, is a clear signal for me that we did a great job with the entire management team really to transform that mission or the, and to transform also the attitude of the security people in the company. They are motivating me to see that people requesting our resources here in, in their project. That's, That's really um, interesting. Yeah. Because oftentimes yeah. you hear, you think of the security team as being the no team rather than facilitators and partners. So it sounds like you're approaching it in a different way. Yeah, and the security problems start uh, with ourselves. Yeah, Take the example of a password. Okay. Yeah, the perfect, technical perfect password is containing out of uh, a couple of hundreds characters, a uh, certain complexity and has to be changed twice a day. Right. And that's a technical, technical-wise, a perfect password. But uh, if you look on the entire process, the result will be that the user will note down the password on the sticky note and put it on the on the screen. Mm-hmm. So, if you include the entire process and the perfect password, it's a weak password because it's written down. And if you take as the counterexample an only six-character password. You block the account after the second, third, or whatever wrong attempt to type it in. Um, you have the same level of security. 
without burdening the customer. Mm -hmm. And the difference is in the first time I talked about our clients as a user and in the second attempt about the customer. And that makes really a difference. Really see them as a customer and not as a user. A user is one is allowed to use the technology. A customer is one you, you treat serious and you try to support and you try to give your best to make him happy. And that's the difference in, in the approach. And it, it's resulting in, in different solution. It's not the perfect technical solution, but the perfect end-to-end -end solution, uh, what matters at the end. This really starts making the difference also in people's mind. When, when you talk to your people, when you try to inspire your people in how to approach security, this is, for me, the most important thing, really to treat your customers as customers and not as users. And you had mentioned trust earlier too, which obviously resonates uh, pretty soundly with us. I know you've been with Deutsche Telekom now for over or around 20 years, um, and it seems like it was a little bit of an interesting career path. How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, honestly uh, more than, than 30 years with Deutsche Telekom. Wow. I started as telecommunication technician. Uh, before I went to university studying electrical engineering, which has absolutely zero to do with the job I'm, I'm uh, having today, uh, except the fact that if you do a mistake in, in high-voltage engineering, it, it hurts uh, in the same way that cyber attacks could hurt us today. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I started that path, and after studying, I uh, came back to Deutsche Telekom Group to... Uh, work in IP network engineering. So I was part of the team doing the engineering for corporate network infrastructure, which is a, is a large one, which you can estimate uh, having more than 200,000 employees. So I started uh, working on that so transformation projects from these old SNA networks to uh, IP networks, uh, all these uh, old-fashioned technology like token ring and then transforming then it to to a modern IP world. This was in the late 90s. And accidentally, I came to security because we had an accident those days um, and an incident, sorry, an incident those days. And my boss was looking for somebody to take care on start writing a security policy and uh, really trying to build up um, security organization and those days x500 was the hot topic and what was that x500 was directory services yeah it was okay. about identities directory services and a colleague of mine and myself we were both pitching for getting the responsibility for that x500 uh, services and my boss said no thomas you have to do the security stuff i said oh damn tough luck <laughs> and uh, um yeah, it turned out to be to be really good luck at the very end. Um, so I spent in, in different positions within security, took over the policy um, responsibility for Deutsche Telekom Group, then took over a technical security service like penetration testing. And over time, I became the CSO. It felt almost like end of career entering the security path those days. Mm. Yeah, those days, it was not that funny working in security. Yeah, that was, as we talked about uh, earlier, it was always the ones uh, who are the roadblocks in the company. Mm -hmm. um, and this was my motivation to start to do things differently with the team Yeah, and say, hey, let's get out of it. And meanwhile, 
cybersecurity is the latest shit, so to say. Yeah, it's the hot topic <laughs> uh, in IT, and um, yeah, it's increasing, 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 becoming increasingly important, and it's also meanwhile a big source of revenue for Deutsche Telekom Group, and not only an area where we have to spend money. I like the way that you put it about, you know, the roadblocks. It sounds like you're, you're basically a roadblock eliminator. So when you hire for your team, is passion something that you're, that you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So usually you, you can spend hours in discussing with people if you have an, have an interview, a job interview about technology, about their ability to code. Yeah, but that for me, really doesn't really matter. You can train them to, to code, yeah? You can train them technology, but what you can't train them is the attitude. And uh, that's, for me, the most important thing, really to have people here around me uh, with the right attitude, with, uh, with the passion, with the motivation. And this is, for me, the most, most, most valuable factor uh, when choosing people for the team. Great. Thank you for that. So... How are you thinking about approaching privacy and data privacy in your role? And how is it similar or how does it differ from um, how it factors into cybersecurity overall? Look, when you look or compare privacy and security from, from the end, it's equally the same. It's about technical security measures to be implemented in systems. But from the motivation, it's different. Yeah, The privacy is motivated from mainly the legal perspective on protecting personal information and personal data. Security is more motivated from a risk perspective. But from the result, it's equally the same. Therefore, it fits perfectly together. That's the first statement on it. The second one, as, as I mentioned, I'm working in a trust business. Mm -hmm. And when I want our customers to trust us, I have to care on their data. So privacy is a huge driver for trust. When I guarantee the data are in good hands here, nobody can have access, then customers start really trusting in us when I can prove that, then they trust in us and then my business will grow over time. If not, um, there's hardly no chance really, really to get growth in IT and uh, telecommunication business. So that's one of my fundamental beliefs. Privacy today, and maybe we're a little special here in Germany because we had totalitarian regimes here with the NSDAP and also with the, the former Eastern uh, uh, Re German Republic, uh, which were spying on the people living here. So that created a different attitude around privacy and also different and maybe a higher demand than, than in other parts of the world. So we treat your privacy totally different than, for example, our colleagues in the U.S. Yeah? So things which are possible in the U.S. Uh, to deal with data and, and having always only the opt-out are totally different here. Here it's, it's more from the opt-in. And it's driven mainly... Uh, by that experience out of the history we, we had here. That's my belief. Obviously, privacy means different things in different places. But what you're saying is that, that as an organization, privacy, it me there, is, there is one meaning of privacy to the organization rather than treating privacy differently in different parts of the world? No, 
I would say the regulation and the deal with how we deal with privacy is differently in, in the world mm-hmm. and how important we treat it is differently. Yeah. So the definition itself it's equally the same, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but the way things we're allowing uh, with regards to personal data are different in the US compared to Europe. Yeah, we have the GDPR in Europe, which is mainly asking for opt-in. If you want to do something with data in the US, it's allowed to do unless a customer is not opting out. Right. And so that's a different approach, how we approach it. But the importance of privacy, I believe it's, it's everywhere the same because privacy has also something to do with democracy. Mm. Yeah, when, when I don't have to fear that everybody knows everything about me, I can, can act more as a free person. That's really, yeah. And therefore, it's, it's for, me, for me, it's an essential part of our democracies that I'm in control of my data. So that's my basic understanding of democracy, that not anybody else is in control of my data. I'm staying in control of my data. I can decide what to do with my data. And when we want to be successful also in future, in, in future business models, we definitely, as an industry, and I'm not talking about Germany specifically, but as an IT industry, have to treat it more seriously than we do it today. What are the unique, in, in, in your mind, the unique privacy challenges brought on by the work from everywhere era? What is the unique privacy challenge? I, I'm not so sure whether there is a privacy or specific privacy challenge on it. It's mainly a security challenge, I would say. It's um, mm-hmm. working in an untrusted environment, how to protect your data working in an untrusted environment you can't control. That That's mainly the challenge. And uh, coming out of, in, in most cases, out of the what, what I call the garden fence principle. So in the past, we we built a fence around our infrastructure. Everything inside the fence was the protected part and was was all good and trustworthy. Everything outside was untrusted. Right. And out of a sudden, we got cloud and distributed services. So meanwhile, I have a lot of services which I need to trust out of my fence. So working from home in the pandemia was working from out of outside of the fence. So the fence was around the corporate building. So meanwhile, I stepped out of the fence and at the same time, um, there was a need to be part of that trusted ecosystem. So that means that the approach we did security in the past is not any longer the right approach for the future. So it's not any longer about building a fence around the infrastructure as the line of defense. It's more bringing security to the identities, but also to the data itself. So for example, if you use digital rights management and encryption to protect the data, you can use uh, at least any infrastructure to transport it because it's encrypted. So then the only question is whether the encryption is strong enough or not. Then we come more about what a lot of people call the zero trust approaches. Yeah. So don't trust the underlying infrastructure, but protect the data itself, protect the identities. And if you look from an attacker perspective, I describe it always as a triangle. You have at the top of the triangle, the attacker, and at the bottom, you have the identity or the system. And the attacker is always trying to, to attack one of those. 
whether it's the system or whether it's the ID. So mm -hmm. once you get your hands on the ID, you get access to the system. Once you get access to the system, you have access to the system. Yeah, so it's very transparent. And so therefore, we, we need to care on, on these both sides. And there were a lot of mistakes by companies really forced to get into the work from everywhere because of the pandemia, not really taking care on how to protect the IDs. We talked about data. We've talked about trust. How can embracing trust become a competitive differentiator for telecom providers in the privacy era, essentially? Hey, look, I would, would turn it around. Okay. Think about what, what, what would happen if you lose the data of your customers. What would that mean to your sales department? Mm -hmm. They would have a hard job afterwards yeah, to convince customers to subscribe for your services. So for me, it's the the essence. It's it needs to be built in. Yeah, there is hardly no other way around. And and we see it's becoming more and more and more and more important. And there's one one point really concerning me, that we still, after more than twenty years um, building those infrastructures based on IP networks, um, we didn't achieve as a IT community to get our systems under control. The issue number one is still the patch management issue. We don't have a proper installed base here. We are not um, in the position that whenever there's a vulnerability, we fix it immediately. Mm -hmm. When you drive a car and there is an issue with the brake and the dealer notifies you about that, I guarantee you within an hour, you're with your car uh, in the service center to get it fixed. Once there is an issue with an IT system and um, the supplier is informing you, hey, there's a serious issue, I guarantee you the average time to be fixed is around 100 days. And that's the problem. A couple of years ago, what we observed in the internet was once one of the, the large operating system vendors, for example, um, released a critical software update. They were mm -hmm. just saying, here's a critical update um, with a certain CVSS core, and that means an attacker could have in minutes administrative access to your machine, you should really, really implement those patches. And then nothing happened and it took three, four, five months. And after five months, we saw the first scannings in the internet looking for that specific vulnerability. So in the meantime, they, they re-engineered the vulnerability, wrote an exploit code and uh, wrote a scanner. Um, and then started scanning the infrastructure, the entire internet infrastructure to find a vulnerable system. So it was months between release of the update and the first really public scanning. Today, in today's world, it's hours. Right. It's not months anymore. It's hours. And when, we, when you see the pop-up, would you install the, the patch now or later? And if you push the later button, then it's too late. Mm -hmm. So we should exchange these buttons. Would you install now or too late? <laughs> that would be the better description. Right, right. And I'm sure you you instill that uh, upon upon your team uh, because if the team isn't isn't doesn't have that mindset, then how can the rest of the organization? People ask me typically, what is keeping you awake at night? Yeah, when yes. there's something keeping me awake at night, uh, beside a, a very loud party in the neighborhood uh, <laughs> then, then it's that topic then it's really that topic really and that, that's an hygiene topic yeah that this is right. not rocket science this is really an hygiene topic so what are the top considerations when it comes to cellular network infrastructure 
Look, from the cellular network infrastructure itself, it's, it's for me, it's not a question about the infrastructure. It's more a question about the usage of these infrastructures because people treating mobile phones like mobile phones. And when we are talking about protecting mobile phones, it's about a PIN number or, or something like that um, to, to block access. But we don't treat them like computers. There's no security software on that mobile phones um, um, usually. Uh, but at the same time, they're connected with high bandwidth um, to the cellular infrastructure. In most of the cases, with higher bandwidth than the fixed lines. They're idling around the entire day in the pockets, but still connected to the infrastructure. So perfect choice for attackers. And this is the most underestimated threat in my view. Really the mistake, not treating mobile phones as computers is uh, the biggest issue. When a new mobile phone is in development, do you have a seat at the table? Uh, do you, you know, are you an advisor of some sort? So you're working hand in hand or is that, or is it more the product comes out and then you need to sort of, uh, you know, evolve accordingly? Yeah, y yes or no, I would say here in, in that is the, is the right answer. Um, we, we do have um, terminal security requirements, we call it, for our vendors, for the mobile phones we are selling to our clients. And we, we ask them, for instance, to guarantee software update for a certain period of time and those kind of things. But, and here's the but, you can buy a cellular phone wherever you want. Plug in the SIM card and use it. Right. Yeah, so you can go to the retail shop around the corner So and there is no control. So what we really need here is more responsibility on the vendor side. Because as an operator, we can't control. As a consumer, it's hard for you to control. So the only way is that, that we, we need to start early in the supply chain. And we need really um, the suppliers to take over responsibilities for, for the devices. From the high-end devices, they do. Yeah? If you take the latest Apple iPhone or the latest Samsung um, as whatever uh, device, they care. But there's a lot of what I would call fire and forget devices. Yeah, Once on the market, there's no software update, no customer care, and that's the biggest issue. And even worse, think about IoT devices also using mobile and cellular networks. Yeah, for instance, a webcam. Who really, or a baby phone or something like that, yeah? Who is really taking care on those devices? Who is really come to the idea that there might be a software update available for the webcam? Mm. Yeah, and that's an issue. And that's an issue where we need to deal with differently in the future. There's fierce competition in your industry. How does that competition speed in, uh, innovation or maybe in some cases even slow innovation, if, if that's possible? I would say competition always uh, is driving innovations because you always try to be the leading edge here. And, and that's good. Competition is always good uh, on the market side. The thing slowing us down more is regulation. yeah, And we have different regulation all over the places. And that's that's a little bit part of the problem. So at the one hand side, we need to buy from global vendors. So getting the infrastructure built. At the other hand, we have local regulation in nearly any market. Uh, but it's different in any market. And that's that's the challenge which is really killing innovation. Yeah. 
and uh, there we need to find ways to to deal with it and uh, for the future i would say we achieved a lot in the standardization with 4g and 5g which were really the first global standards in uh, cellular networks uh, before we had an asian one we had a european one and we had an american standard and it was a mass traveling around the planet as a business traveler so you were always forced to have three mobile phones with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, we have that global standard, but I see a certain tendency uh, that the world is again splitting in different um, tax spheres, that we end up in a more Western tax sphere and a more Asian tax sphere. That, that's my, my fear at the moment. So you, you just mentioned uh, 5G, and we had talked about IoT a moment ago. How are you approaching the intersection of 5G and IoT, and and what are the opportunities and challenges? First of all, I would say 5G is more bandwidth. That's it. So it looks easy from the first view. It's not. There's a lot more in and a lot more to come. Like like we get abilities to build private network called network slices uh, based on a public um, cellular network. So that's really unique and creating a lot of opportunities because you can build virtual infrastructures on top of a physical infrastructures with different kind of service levels. So out of a sudden, you get enabled to have an IoT slice, for instance, with low latency, but also low bandwidth because there is no need for high bandwidth. And you being able to have on the same infrastructure um, a different layer with maybe low latency and high bandwidth and high security. Nobody else could access um, those. Yeah, So it will create a different way of networking for the future. So I have one more question for you. And then um, I saw a little bit about the Cyber Defense and Security Operations Center. Um, what kind of work is going on there and, and, and what is it? So it's mainly monitoring what happens uh, and modeling threat vectors and trying to identify whether they're happening in our infrastructure or not. And this 24 by 7. So there's a lot of people working in threat intelligence, really trying to identify the latest threats. A lot of people then working in what we call use case engineering, trying to build use cases or could call it detection scenarios. With the increasing complexity of the infrastructures we have today, and we talked about defense approach, yeah? mm-hmm. it's not so easy anymore to build defense around. And as we know, the infrastructure is complex and it's not so easy to build defense around. We need also to change the paradigm and how we deal with it. In the future, was the paradigm to uh, trying to avoid the attacker to get in. Now we're more entering a world where the paradigm must be the assumed breach paradigm. Right. Yeah. And with the assumed breach, it's um, out of importance really to have these mechanisms to detect early on. And therefore, Cyber Defense Center is the answer. Yeah. Really to have the detection capabilities in place, have uh, also a lot of automation, machine learnings uh, in place. Uh, I avoid to talk about AI because it's mainly artificial but not intelligent yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but but having all these technologies in place to, to deal with a huge amount of data, trying to find the attacker and get him out as soon as possible again. Maybe there's one thing we forgot in, in our conversation I want to highlight here, and that's the, the topic of identities. 
So a lot of people now talking about the metaverse mm -hmm. and uh, going virtual. But what is when we do the same mistakes like we did in the beginning of the internet? We started the internet connecting everything because we could. Not because of it makes sense, not because of we were sure that it doesn't hurt. We just connected it because it was possible to connect. Right. And we don't don't really uh, care on identities and ensuring that we know who is talking to whom. And now transfer that into the metaverse. And now put to the formula also deep fakes, like deep video fakes. So conversations like we have today are easy to be cheated in future. And how to avoid that without having a valid identity management in place. So we really, really, really need to care on identities, on digital identities, whether it's for machines, whether it's for services, whether it's for humans. We do need to have those identities in place. Otherwise, we will fail tremendously in future. I feel like we, we could probably catch up again soon and, and talk about entirely different stuff because it's ever-changing and it sounds like you've got so much going on in your world um, and would, would love to do so. Thank you for joining us and uh, really enjoyed our, our conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. And it felt like uh, being just only five minutes talking here. That's how we want it. That's perfect. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 